Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians is what you could call a pretty weighty letter. It's weighty because it deals with many of the concerns that the Apostle had with this congregation. And unlike many of his other letters, where he first lays out some doctrinal, lengthy doctrinal section and, and then moves on to application, in 1 Corinthians, Paul almost immediately plunges right into the problems that plagued the church at Corinth. And these were some serious problems. And they were not few in number. There were divisions in the church. There was a problem with a lack of discipline. There was confusion about Christian freedom, just to name a few. And so this letter deals with many topics that are also of relevance and of concern to the church today. The message to the church at Corinth is the same message to the church today, also to the church in Elora. And this morning we will look at the first nine verses of chapter 1. And I have summarized the sermon with the following theme. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, we are called to be saints. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, we are called to be saints. For this reason, we give thanks for God's grace. Secondly, for this purpose, we are enriched by God's gifts. And in the third place, to this end, we are sustained by God's faithfulness. <clears throat> so by the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, he had already had a fairly lengthy relationship with that congregation. He wrote this letter around 55 AD, five years after the Holy Spirit had first led him to Corinth. And we read about his arrival in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Paul spent about a year and a half there preaching and teaching among them the word of God. And during that time, the Lord blessed his work in, in spite of opposition from the Jews and from others. The Lord told Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Not one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Even Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, became a believer. But now it's five years later, and Paul has left Corinth. He has moved on to other cities and to other work. In the meantime, he has visited Jerusalem. He's come back to Antioch to report there to the brothers about his work. And then he settled in Ephesus for three years, and that's where he heard reports of what was going on in Corinth, alarming reports. He heard from Chloe's people, and in chapter 7, verse, verse 1, we, we can conclude that he also received a letter from some members of the congregation outlining their concerns. And what Paul heard was certainly disconcerting. The church at Corinth, you could say, was a mess. It had become a church that was wandering from its foundations. Many of the teachers that arrived after Paul had, had been there seemed to be more interested in novel ideas than in correct theology. Many people in the church were divorcing their behavior from their convictions, and some were acting as if holy living was not a necessary part of Christian living. And there were divisions in the church. There was a party spirit. Some claimed to follow Paul. Others said, I follow Apollos. Some took 
what they thought was the high road and said, well, I follow Christ. You can read about that in the rest of chapter 1. And then this caused much, much tension in the congregation. There was jealousy and strife. Chapter 3, verse 3. They glorified human leaders instead of glorifying Christ. And there was much confusion about Christian liberty, about whether or what you could eat and not eat, meat offered to idols, about which religious days you should observe or shouldn't observe. This created division in the church as well, especially because people on either side became religious snobs considering themselves to be more religious than those who thought differently. And church discipline was lax. They allowed sexual immorality in the church. In chapter 5, we read about a man who lived with his own stepmother, his father's wife. And they were seemingly even proud of this kind of conduct, thinking that they, because they were living in grace, they were free from normal moral restrictions. And then in chapter 11, we read about how they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. But first, the rich people would come together and they would have a feast at which some of them even became drunk while their poorer brothers and sisters had to look on, hungry. And then, and then they had to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And there were others who despised the authority of Paul. He even had to defend his right to earn a living from the preaching of the gospel. Read about that in chapter 9. Does it surprise you, brothers and sisters, to hear about a church like this? Well, it really shouldn't. Has there ever been a time in history when the church was not plagued by some or all of these kinds of difficulties? And wouldn't it be truthful to say that Every congregation at one time or another has dealt with some of the same issues, perhaps even all of the issues that Paul had to deal with in Corinth. So what would you do if you were a member of the church in Corinth? Would you pack up and leave? It's easy for us to look down our pious religious noses at the people in Corinth. But we don't really have to go that far from home, do we, to f find reasons for why the church isn't all that great. It's not hard to find imperfection in the church. Just look around you, at the people beside you in the pew. Better yet, look in the mirror. Our human inclination is to be easily dissatisfied with the church. There's always something wrong to find with the church, isn't there? And humanly speaking, there's always reasons to leave the church. The people are flawed. The leadership is flawed. The worship is flawed. The discipline is flawed. Corinth wasn't really all that unique, was it? And so how do we deal with this? Do we, do we go church shopping? Do we wipe the dust off our feet and go, go find another place to worship? That's what, that's what lots of people do. They're always searching for a better place, a church that suits them better, that caters to their needs, looking for the perfect church, and then when they think they found it, they immediately make it imperfect by joining it. 
Well, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit gives us a cure to this problem and to this attitude here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul begins, to the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And I give thanks to my God always for you. We might ask Paul, like, where are you coming from? How can he begin like this? Well, it's because his focus is on the work of God, brothers and sisters, and not on the work of men. It's not Paul's church. The church doesn't belong to the Corinthians either. The church in Corinth is God's church. He is the one who calls. He is the one who sanctifies. He is the one who equips people for service. It's the work of God. And for that, Paul gives thanks. I give thanks to my God always for you, he writes, because of the grace of God that was given you. Paul marvels at the work of grace that has happened in the lives of the Corinthian believers. And he knows, he knows that if we lose sight of God's purpose and of God's faithfulness, then we're just going to end up going through the motions, aren't we? Or if we try to think of ways to, to improve ourselves and our situation. Or we will try to, to make the necessary changes to make us look better or feel better. If only we do this or if we do some more of that, then the church will be better. But those are not the things to which the church owes its existence, congregation. That's not how it happens. It's not more activity or more good works, but it's faith and the maturity of faith that counts. In chapter 6, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Who were you before you were called, he asked them. You were despised and lowly slaves to sin immoral rebels, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how God impacts the world. By that power which he supplies. And that's what Paul is writing about. The church in Corinth is empowered by the grace and the gifts of God. That's what describes the church at Corinth. That's also what describes the church today. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, Paul writes at the end of chapter 1. The church, brothers and sisters, is called into being according to God's purpose. Paul could no more explain his own existence as an apostle as he could explain how the Corinthians had become the church of God. Because if Jesus Christ had not arrested Paul on the road to Damascus and taken him captive and made him captive to the gospel, Paul wouldn't be writing this letter to the Corinthians either, would he? 
What stands out is the personal unworthiness of the one who is called. Like Paul, the church, we, we are called by God in spite of who we are. And yet, as surely as Paul was called, the saints are called. God calls and he selects the members of the church. He arrests us. He sanctifies us. He makes us captive to the gospel. And that's how we are drawn into fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's how we are made participants in his death and his resurrection. And that is why Paul equates the church with those who are sanctified and called to be saints. That is, people who are inwardly renewed by God's Spirit and set apart for God's service. And because we are called by God and renewed by His Holy Spirit, we in turn respond by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what saints do. They call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ And as Paul writes, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And this phrase, Paul added that to keep us humble. It reminds us that we are not self-contained. We're not a a self-sufficient community. We're not the only frog in the puddle. There are others who are saints too. And Paul warns the Corinthians in 4 verse 17 that they had to follow the same instructions and teachings, the same patterns of thought and lifestyle that he gave to the other churches. They were not to make a go of it on their own. That is why I sent you Timothy, he writes, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. They were to consider themselves to be under the rule of Christ no less than the other churches. What we need to take from this, beloved, is that we don't have first dibs on the favor of the Lord. We don't have first dibs on the grace of God. Christ has not been apportioned to us only. Let's not think that we have the edge on wisdom or knowledge or the ability to speak. We don't have the edge on exclusive wisdom to know what's right and wrong, either personally or as a congregation or a federation. Do we we genuinely, genuinely confess the Catholicity of the church? Yes or no? Christ is not the exclusive Christ of a certain and select group of people. There were many self-absorbed people in Corinth, self-centered people who, who thought and acted as if they had a monopoly on Christ and on the Holy Spirit. And the kind of attitude that says the world revolves around me. But Christ is not a Lord who serves only the interest of a particular group of people. He might include them in his lordship, but they're not the only ones. He is Lord over his church everywhere, in China, in Scotland, Haiti, Korea, Brazil. You can think of more places. And we don't have first dibs on his lordship because we happen to be Dutch or Calvinists. 
or Reformed confessors. Yes, we must be thankful for what we have, also for our heritage, but this may never make us either complacent or arrogant. For as the Apostle writes elsewhere, anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And calling on the name of the Lord and confessing Jesus is Lord is the same thing as Paul writes in chapter 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Congregation, one of the surest ways to create division in the church is to insist that we know it better than someone else. One group insists on holding to tradition, another group insists on breaking tradition. Instead, instead, we should be asking ourselves, what is it that would please the Lord Jesus? How can we, who are sanctified in Christ and called to be saints, also here in Elora, best honor him, considering the gifts and the talents and the time and the possessions that we have as congregation? How can we best honor him? Because the church is not without gifts, brothers and sisters. Paul tells the church at Corinth, you were enriched in Christ. The church is enriched by God for the purpose of fulfilling the call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, notice how Paul writes that the church is enriched in every way. The church is fully endowed with the gifts of Christ. Yes, the church is flawed. There are many problems. There were divisions. There's sexual immorality. There's drunkenness. And there's other sins that need to be dealt with. Yet, it is to this flawed church that Paul writes, Grace to you and peace. May the favor of God rest upon you. Congregation, do we recognize that we, as church community, have been collectively endowed with God's grace and enriched in every way with his gifts? And these gifts are spiritual endowments. They are freely given. That's what grace is. You know, so often we use the word gifted, don't we? So-and-so is very gifted as if this person has somehow gained or possesses some special quality in and of themselves. And then gifted people are told to think of themselves as a cut above others. But how can that be? If gifted really means receiving something. A gift from God is a bestowed favor, a grace-applied favor, because we don't deserve anything and we don't have anything or receive anything apart from grace apart from God and that's the only way that we can be thankful for one another too isn't it only if I recognize that my gifts and the gifts of my brothers and sisters if I only recognize this in faith then I can be thankful for all that we have together. How else would it be possible to be thankful for one another? Because humanly speaking, why would we be thankful for one another? We're so different. 
That's because we're not prepared to see each other as brothers and sisters, as saved by, by grace and gifted by God just as we are. But the fact of the matter is that I am no, no, no more deserving of God's grace than anyone else. You know, we can come up with all kinds of reasons for why we wouldn't want to hang out with people from the church. Sometimes we think that way. But they have received God's grace no less than I. They have been washed in Christ's blood no less than I. My brothers and sisters have received God's gifts no less than I. And therefore, she is my sister. Therefore, he is my brother. Because isn't that how grace works, brothers and sisters? Is grace just, just for you? Do you think God would rather hand out his grace to you than to your brother and sister? You think God would rather forgive your sins than the sins of your brother or sister? Do we go through life sometimes thinking that we are personally better recipients of God's grace than, than the people who share the pew with us on Sunday morning? And can we not see that even though others are not exactly the way we would like them to be, that God's grace is also at work in their lives? Did Christ not shed his blood equally for my fellow believer as for me? And that is precisely why he is my brother and why she is my sister. It is the grace of God that knits us together. Not because we're Calvinist Reformed believers or because we have many of us share the same heritage, but only because of God's grace. Grace is given to all those who are called to be saints. And the apostle tells us we lack no spiritual gift. And this isn't meant individually, but as a church community. Because which individual would dare to stand up and say, I lack no spiritual gift? No one would dare to say that. But Paul is speaking in the plural. You, plural, are not lacking any gift. As a community, we are rich. As a community, we have all the gifts of the Spirit, as mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, for example, or Romans chapter 12. Gifts of service, gifts of teaching, gifts of encouragement and preaching, of hospitality and generosity, gifts of faith and of love and service to one another, and all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As a community, we are together enriched in every way. We've been given everything we need to be called saints and to be sanctified in Christ. Again, more reason to thank God for the grace that's given to us. And that's why Paul says later on in this letter that the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. Only as we are together can we experience the enrichment of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We need one another in order to share in all those gifts. That is how God created the church as the body of Christ. And Paul points out two examples in our text 
And he mentions precisely those gifts that were so contentious among the Corinthians, most prized amongst them, speaking and knowledge. They used the gift of speaking in tongues to form an elitist group within the congregation, and they used the gift of knowledge to live an immoral lifestyle. They were all about themselves, boasting about their own abilities and their status in the church. But Paul brushes that conceit aside. These are communal gifts, he tells the church. When we use the gifts of the Spirit to promote ourselves or to make ourselves look better, then we lose out. But when we use our gifts as Christ intended, for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of one another, then we will experience God's blessing. Then his grace and his peace will rest upon us. And how does Paul know this? Well, he writes, the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. In other words, I brought you the gospel, I preached it to you, you accepted it, it was confirmed in your hearts by the Holy Spirit when you were called and sanctified to be members of the church. You received the gospel, you received the Holy Spirit and all his gifts. Oh yes, we recognize that not everything is as it should be, but you lack nothing. We too. We have all that we need, brothers and sisters, to be the church of God, also in Elora, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. And that is why we are called to work according to the gifts we have received. That means that we are responsible to know what gifts exist in the congregation. And we are obliged to use them, not just individually, but collectively. That's your calling as saints. That's why God makes this church a place where Christ dwells. Well, that's the way that God makes this church a place where Christ dwells. It's through you and you and you. That's right. God wants to use you, all of you, to make this a sanctified congregation. And that's why there's no such thing as an ungifted saint or an ungifted church. Not if it's God's church, for it is God who sanctifies us for service, and he is faithful, and he sustains his saints even to the end. You know, there must have been some people in Corinth who thought the church was done. What a bunch of awful sinners. So much pride and arrogance and unfaithfulness and petty judgmentalism. It's rather obvious that the saints have not yet arrived. And so where do we get the confidence, as Paul writes, to wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ? How can Paul say we will be guiltless in the day of the Lord? Where does he get this confidence from? What about you, brothers and sisters, boys and girls? Do you ever wonder if you are ready to meet the Lord on the last day? Or 
Are you ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ if he would call you home today? Do you find yourself thinking, well, I haven't really had enough time yet to repent from that sin. I haven't really had enough time yet to make the right changes in my life. But that's the wrong answer. Why is it that we often forget how all-encompassing grace really is? We are quite ready to believe that God accepts us by grace in Christ alone, but we often live as if we have to remain in grace by our own efforts. It is in Christ alone that you will stand guiltless before God on that day. And the reason that you will stand guiltless before him on that day is the same reason why you are accepted by him today. God's grace doesn't just bring you into the sheepfold of Christ. It keeps you there. God's grace doesn't just grant you the righteousness of Christ, but also his sanctifying Holy Spirit. We will not be blameless because of our own perseverance and strength, but because of God's faithfulness. It's true, on the last day the books will be opened. And we will have to give an account for everything we've done and for every idle word we've spoken. But we have a Savior who has stepped in for us, brothers and sisters, and he will not let go of the work that he has accomplished. Yes, the books will be opened. All those who have done evil, who have not recognized Jesus as Lord in this life, yes, they too will fall on their knees, and they will be forced to worship the Lamb of God, but he will say, I never knew you. But all those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and have acknowledged him as Lord in this life will be declared innocent because they trusted in the blood of the Lamb already today. Yes, our deeds will be exposed, but only to prove the immeasurable immeasurability of God's grace only to show the great extent of his love and his mercy. And then we will rejoice together in the love of our God. And all this is possible, beloved, because God is faithful. Those whom he calls, he also sanctifies, and he will carry out his work through completion. The message that the church is sanctified in Christ Jesus and that we are called to be saints, it's like a promissory note. It's like receiving a spiritual check that we can cash in on God's heavenly bank account. But that check that we hold in our hands must affect and shape our lives today already. We can believe the promissory note. That's why those who place their trust in Christ are called believers. We believe in the promise we've been given, brothers and sisters, for on Calvary, our sin was dealt with once for all. 
And on the last day, our Lord Jesus Christ will make that publicly clear. On that day, he will declare that all our deeds, all our sinful deeds have been wiped away. Amen. <laughs>